Hey, it's so good to see all you guys. My name's Brent. Uh, I know it's been like six weeks since I've been here, so they handed me a guest card when I came to church this morning. What's up with that? All right, who's your favorite Muppet? Hot it out. Kermit? Kermit? Miss Piggy? Where's my Miss Piggy people at? Miss Piggy. Does anybody like Animal, the drummer? <laughs> animal is my son's spirit animal. Like, I don't know if you saw that going on today, but like... Animal back there on the drums is killing it for Jesus. I mean, when we Kellogg's go, we go all in. We all in. So it has been a, uh, been a crazy week. Uh, show of hands, how many of you guys lost power? Come on, get your hands in the air like you really do care. Uh, how about the people that did not lose power? Where are we at? Okay. Yeah. Um, felt a little guilty for a little bit, but I slept in air conditioning all week long. So... Sorry about you. So, um, hey, listen, listen, all of our kids and youth workers and all that, it was just preparing you for what Jesus wants to do this week when you go to camp and you sweat for Jesus, right? So, um, I, I fully believe that uh, we Hill Spring Church um, are a little smarter than your average bear, um, meaning nobody's going to come and complain to me about this is what I'm trying to say, okay? Uh, I'm going to confuse you just a little bit, okay? So, uh, first of all, we had like 140 people in first service. I don't have room for 140 people in here. Two weeks ago, the last time we were all together in one service at 11 o'clock, there were seven empty seats in this room, and that was with setting extra chairs, no parking spots, people parked in the grass. Like we told you, Memorial Day, hey, we're going to try to do the whole one service thing as long as we can. And how incredible crazy is that God has blessed this church so much so that we can't do that. So we're back in two service mode right now. Amen, everybody? Yeah, that's awesome. except for the next two weeks, <laughs> right? So it's 4th of July, Sunday, next weekend. Like, you're not even gonna be here. You're gonna be at the lake. So we're gonna have one service, and let we, because we snow on holiday weekends, people go over the river and through the woods to grandma's house and all that stuff. You're gonna be out of town anyway. But anyway, one, one service next Sunday at 11. Then the following Sunday is Sunday after Serve Day. And we always do one service there too. And it's just gonna be a big party, big celebration. Pastor Matt brought up that black stone that's randomly gone missing. But I think, <clears throat> check Will's garage, maybe? Yeah, okay. Um, here's what, if you, if you register and sign up for surgery, you have to register. We need to know you're coming. And then if you actually show up to surgery, it's funny, we have people registering, we understand life happens. But then that following Sunday, if you're here that Sunday in service, then we're going to give that Blackstone to somebody that came to serve day, registered for serve day, and uh, we're just going to bless you in the Lord. Can I get an Amen. So, awesome. We are in Mark chapter 9. Uh, it, it, we've been crawling through the Gospel of Mark in a series called Walking with Jesus, uh, changing the series title, but we're still in Mark chapter 9 that we're, we're walking through. And um, it was kind of sad not to get to have Father's Day service because um, I had three pages of dad jokes. <laughs> You want to hear a dad joke, Andrew? You in? All right. Well, remember, you asked for it. So my wife said I should do some lunges to get in shape, and I told her that's a real big step forward. Don't do that one. Um, I thought, this is actually true, I thought the dryer was shrinking my clothes. Turns out it was the refrigerator. <laughs> um, so why do seagulls fly over the ocean? 
because if they flew over the bay, they would be bagels. <laughs> somebody laughed just like that in first service. I think somebody fell over in the booth. It was so funny. Where do you learn to make a banana split? Sunday school. Oh! One more. Y'all realize I could have read a bunch of boring names out of the book of Numbers, right? This is my favorite one. I ordered a chicken and an egg from Amazon. I'll let you know. <laughs> what are they? Camp, address this. Um, the old adage, absence makes the heart grow fonder. I thought y'all could be a little fonder of me. So I actually haven't opened my preaching schedule to outside churches in about four years. And uh, this year, I decided to do that just to see if the whole absence makes your heart grow fonder thing. So hopefully you're fonder of me. But it was, it was great. I'm also the president of Mr. Alliance or local church network this year. And so took that opportunity to go speak at some churches. And we have some incredible churches in Sand Springs. Like if you're a guest with us today and you're looking for a church, this community is amazingly blessed with the awesome churches. And here, here's what's cool is we all lock arms and work hand in hand together to see this community transformed for Christ. Like, we really are trying to love our neighbor. We really are trying to, I mean, we're not the only church that does a serve day. There's, there's a lot of churches that do a serve day. And so it was really great for me to get to, I spoke at three different churches in our community and ministered. But man, there's no place like home. And uh, I, I love it being here. So uh, some of you guys that didn't have electricity and then they came on, air conditioning. Like, you take it for granted, don't you? Right? Don't come to church and complain that it's cold in here. When you, when you come to church and it's cold, just remember when the air conditioning went out, so. Um, in 1880, the British Queen Victoria gave a desk to who was then President of the United States, Rutherford B. Hayes, and that desk was actually made out of lumber or timbers from one of the British ships, the HMS Resolute. And it's famously through history become known as the Resolute Desk. So when Kennedy was assassinated, it actually, there actually was a tour that went across the United States and they took some Kennedy artifacts from his presidency and from his life and they actually took the Resolute Desk on tour with all of that. It wasn't until Jimmy Carter became president that he said, hey, can we get that back in the Oval Office? And so Carter brought the Resolute Desk back into the Oval Office where it has been since the Carter administration. Except for a couple of years under George Herbert Walker Bush, Daddy Bush, he put it in a different location for, for some odd reason. But, I mean, it's still there today. And it's known as the Resolute Desk. Kind of a, it was a gift, but it's also a mark of pride for our country. Just the name that fits. The word resolute, it's an adjective. means it's used to describe something. And it is, it means firmly resolved. means determined. It is set in purpose or opinion. Mark chapter 9, we're going to pick up on this story on this journey with Jesus today, is what I would call the resolute chapter. Several weeks ago, before we kind of took our break, Pastor Matt did a great job of, of preaching that story of Mount Transfiguration, where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain, and he is transfigured. He's kind of transformed, and in, in, in Elijah and Moses come and visit, and it's awesome, and they're overwhelmed. And when Jesus comes down off of that mountain, it's a completely different mindset. That Mount Transfiguration was a tipping point in the story of Jesus. Now, we're in Mark's gospel, but I'm going to show you a verse out of Luke chapter 9. 
which, by the way, is a parallel verse or a parallel chapter with Mark chapter 9. Let me, let me show it to you in Luke. You don't need to turn there. I'll put it on the screen. But Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says, As the time drew near for him, meaning Jesus, to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. His face was resolute. It was firmly resolved. It was determined. It was set in purpose or opinion. By the way, that verse in Luke chapter 9 takes place time-wise in Mark chapter 9. That's why I borrowed it. Jesus, when he comes off that mountain, his face is resolutely set towards one last trip to Jerusalem. For the most part, his public ministry will be over. Yes, he will heal people. Yes, he will teach. But that's not the point anymore. The point is not to draw crowds. The point is to, to, to kind of slip out of the crowds, not draw crowds. The point is to take one last trip to Jerusalem where he would face arrest, trial, and a bloody execution on a cross. That Mount Transfiguration is a tipping point. It's a turning point in the story of Jesus. Mountaintops are great. Our kids, our students are going to go off to camp this week. Gonna, man, it's going to be great. Like, we're going to schedule their life for them. They have their quiet time. Going to go to service and get to play games. And we're going to help them program church in their life four days. I mean, it's, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be a mountaintop. They're not going to want to come home. Parents are not going to want them to come home. It's a nice break. Can I get an amen? Right? But mountaintops are great where life is good. Maybe it's a retreat or a vacation or maybe you just feel this closeness to God. It's just a moment that we don't want to leave. Even Peter on that Mount Transfiguration like, Jesus, this is really good for us to be here. Let's just build a house. I'll build one for you. I'll build one for Moses. Let's just stay here. He's like, no, we, we got to go. The reason why they didn't want to come off that mountain was because they were constantly pulled with stress. There were constant demands. There were constant crowds just always trying to manage Jesus and, and trying to figure out when we're going to eat and the people that are here, how are we going to feed them? And just, it was constant stress. When they came down off that mountain, they were immediately confronted from the stress they were trying to avoid so desperately. Let me show you this. Mark chapter 9, we'll start reading in verse 14. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. When they returned to the other disciples. So up on the mountain, Jesus, Peter, James, and John means nine disciples didn't get invited. Okay? They returned to the other disciples. They saw a large crowd surrounding them and some teachers of religious law we're arguing with them, okay? So these religious elites always questioning Jesus' ministry, questioning his followers, trying to stop them. Verse 15, when the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe, and they ran to greet him. And Jesus like, what is all this arguing about? One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He's possessed by an evil spirit, and it won't let him talk. And whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground, and then it foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said to them, pay attention to this, you faithless people, how long must I put up with you? How long must I, how much long must I be with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy. When the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening, Jesus asked. And the father's, he replied, well, since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire, into water, trying to kill him. The father's still talking, and he says, 
have mercy on us and help us if you can. It's interesting wording. We don't really know the age of the boy. We don't know a lot of the details. Honestly, it's kind of a tragic, sad story. We don't know much about his life. We don't know when the demonization, the possession, we, we don't know when that started. We just know the little boy was tormented. And his father had done all he knew to do. So put yourself in that father's shoes. That father more than likely was exhausted. He was exhausted. He'd done everything he knows to do. He'd spent time. He'd spent money. He'd spent resources. They'd probably been to doctors. They'd probably prayed and prayed and tried to spank and discipline, do everything. On top of the exhaustion of just dealing with the tormented son, now he makes the choice to get him out in public. To take him out of the home, wrestle with the boy. The boy doesn't speak, so communication is a challenge. This is just a picture of a father at his wit's end. He's exhausted. But he hears, hey, Jesus is in the area. And he heard that Jesus has healed people. And he's heard that Jesus has dealt with demons. And he's heard that Jesus could fix this. So what little bit of energy he has left, he maybe just maybe. If I get my son out, maybe, just maybe, Jesus will have mercy on us and help us. And he'll stop and see my situation and help me. So the father's exhausted. It's an assumption, but I think it's a safe assumption. The father's probably also embarrassed. I mean, it's one thing to take your kid to Walmart and they act a fool. They throw a fit, cause a scene, pass out, kick, stomp in the floor. Number one, they know it works. You're going to give them whatever they want, right? But that also will embarrass the fire out of you. Amen, parents? This isn't just a trip to Walmart. This is a continual, ongoing, daily struggle of life. The father cannot control his son. The child acts possessed because he is possessed. Boy, stand up. Boy, stop it. Boy, quit. I'm going to take my belt off. None of it works. It does nothing. The boy and the father are powerless over the control that the demon has on this poor suffering boy. Now, reading some of this, I know what some of you are thinking, that possibly some of your kids are possessed. No, they, just, they probably just need a spanking. We don't spank. Okay. No, parents, there's a serious note in here too. I, I want you to notice that the spiritual care, the spiritual protection of our children is our responsibility. Notice what this father did when his child was in crisis, when no one else could help. He brought his child to Jesus. Are you leading your children towards Jesus? Are you pushing through the exhaustion because kids are exhausting? Are you pushing through the embarrassment? Are you willing to do whatever it takes for your children to encounter the real, loving power of life that's only found with Jesus? So on top of the embarrassment of never knowing how this kid's going to act when I take him out in public. There's also cultural assumptions that the dad's having to deal with. There's also this just cultural pressure, right? There are whispers, people judging him. I bet it's his fault. I bet, it's, I bet he, he sinned. I bet that's why his son's all like that. Is it him or the mom? One of, I don't know. How would a good father... Let his child suffer like that. So it's just easier not to go out. It just becomes easier to seclude away in isolation, privacy of your own home, so no one can see my faults, no one can see my failures. And we do that 
the enemy wins. Father's exhausted, father's embarrassed, father's also discouraged. By the time Jesus shows up on the story, the father is absolutely discouraged. You hear it in his words. I heard that Jesus was near. Maybe, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll get the boy out. Maybe Jesus will have mercy and help us. And then he gets there and he's only met with the discouragement of Jesus ain't there. There's a crowd, there's a ruckus, there's his disciples, his followers, and Jesus is nowhere around. So he takes him to the other disciples that are there. Keep in mind, these disciples had healed people. These disciples had been sent out on ministry trips. These disciples had cast demons out of people. These disciples had done the supernatural. So I'm going to take him to them. Not this time. So he shows up. Jesus is nowhere to be around. And then, and secondly, the nine remaining disciples are absolutely powerless. They can't do anything to this demon. They try. They're like, get out of the way. Let me, I'm going to stomp on the devil. Come on out. And like, he's like, what are you going to do? Like, there, there was nothing they could do. And all it does was draw a crowd, creates a ruckus. These spiritual elite Pharisees and other teachers show up and start arguing with them. And so now there's just a mess. And you've got this dad that's exasperated. And he's discouraged. And here comes Jesus, Peter, James, and John walking off the mountain. They're talking about how awesome it was. They're just glowing. And Jesus is like, what, what, is, what in the world is going on here? And the father speaks up and he explains the situation. My son's tormented by this demon. I brought him to your disciples. They couldn't do anything. And then Jesus makes... Thoughts with you. Jesus makes this very pointed statement to the crowd. Like when you read this, this doesn't really fit the kind, gentle Jesus that we like to pretend and imagine. Verse 19, it says, Jesus said to them, You faithless people, exclamation point. How long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Great. I'm a dad. Risk getting my son out in public, it's embarrassing, it's a spectacle, everybody, I mean, he just acts all, it's gone about as bad as it can be expected. Now there's a crowd, the religious people are yelling at them, the disciples are, no, Jesus, I was just hoping you could have mercy on me, but now I feel like I'm getting yelled, I'm getting scolded, you faithless people. Verse 21, Jesus says, how long has this been happening, he asked the boy's father, since the boy was just little. The spirit often throws him into the fire, into water, trying to kill him. Watch this. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. The father in this moment asked for two things. He asked for mercy and he asked for help. If you can. What do you mean if I can, Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly whispered. The father instantly mumbled under, no, 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 no. You, have to, you, you can't just read this you have, the father instantly cried out, probably with tears of frustration and desperation. I do believe. Could you just help my unbelief? Could you just get me out of the way, Jesus, and just have mercy and help us? This story, this interaction between an embarrassed, exhausted, discouraged father and Jesus, I think captures the essence of what it's like to be a Christian. The frustration of this man's life. One author described it as an unbelieving believer. Even this past week, 
for me, maybe for you, there's been these moments of frustration, doubt, hopelessness. Life just has a way of giving doubt a platform, doesn't it? Like waking up at 4 a.m., can't go back to sleep. Mind starts running and stressing. How are we going to do all this? I mean, and then you, you kind of stop worrying about the details, and then you just, God, where are you? Can you, can you even see? Do you even know? Do you even hear me? God, do you even care that I am stressed to the hill? God, can, can you even help my situation? Is this how it's going to be? Like, am I on my own now? Other people's kids are healthy and free and normal. Other people's marriages are healthy and happy. Other people's career are just blessed and satisfying and they make great money. Other people's business, everything just works for them. It's going great. Other people's lives just has God's hand guiding and blessing them. And then there's me. It's like the father saying, I believe. I wouldn't have got the boy out. I wouldn't have risked the exhaustion, the embarrassment. I got him out because I do believe. I brought him here because I believe. I've heard you do it. I've seen you do it. I know that you heal people. I know that you've done it for other people. But my unbelief is I just don't know that you'll do it for me. I know you'll do it for them, but God, in my life, in my stress, I've been praying for this boy and praying for this boy. I, I, just, I just don't know that you'll do it for me. Could have been the man's guilt that was clackling in the halls of his mind. It's all my fault. I sinned. My son wouldn't, my son wouldn't have this issue if I hadn't have done that one big mistake way back when. I guess, I guess I just ticked him off. I guess I just made him mad. Oh, that one way I treated that, that one time I cheated, that one time I. And then life just has a way of letting us assume our sins are the cause of our suffering. Yes, Jesus, I believe because I've seen you do it for others. Help my unbelief because I don't know that you'll do it for me. Then we go to church on Sunday, right? Hey, how's it going? Oh, buddy, I'm just blessed. I'm better than I deserve. Now, we at Hillspring have a unique language and a certain way we say things, right? Man, how you doing? I'm finding the frogs here. That's how we say it around here. You know what I'm saying? I'm happier in a tornado in a trailer park. Probably a little soon on that one, eh? Sorry. <laughs> Man, I'm happier in a tick on a fat dog, you know? Like we go to church and you people, man, I'm just doing great. I'm blessed. And we think it must be nice. But we say, well, man, us too. I mean, preacher gets up there and says, we got to fake it till you make it. Come on, somebody. Let's be a people of hope. Let's be positive. I know your life stinks right now, but we know how the story ends. Somebody ought to say amen. All the while we're amening that, we're wrestling with this burden that exhausts us. And if people really knew the details of my life, that would embarrass us. But here, we're going to fake it till we make it. But then on the other side of that coin, we go to church and then we say things like, well, church is a perfect place for imperfect people. Church is a place where you can come be real and, and be authentic. And we all struggle and we're here just helping each other through. So sometimes I'm like, which one is it? Because if I'm always finding a frog's hair, if I'm always blessed, better than I deserve, I come across as fake and phony. 
But if I'm always struggling and I'm always just keeping it real, I become Winnie the Pooh's character, Eeyore. Eeyore. Oh, well. So it feels like we can talk out of both sides of our mouth as Christians sometimes. No? Just me? Is it just me? The dismal faith of a desperate father. Says Jesus, I know you can. I've heard you can. I've seen you do it. I'm just not sure you'll do it for me. I believe. Help my unbelief. And this brings to head a theological debate that has raged for centuries in the church. Everybody, so my name is Brent Kellogg. My initials are BK. So I just need you to repeat after me. Everybody say, I love. BK. I'm not talking about Burger King. <laughs> Gives me indigestion. There's been this theological debate specifically around this story. And some of you grew up on one side or the other. And I'm going to spoil the ending. I'm not going to resolve it for you today. The issue of getting my prayers answered is that God's will versus my faith. See, there are people in, in churches and denominations that will teach, if you want your prayers answered, you just got to have enough faith. It's up to you. You just got to make sure that you don't doubt. You have to have unwavering faith to move the mountains. If you didn't get your prayers answered, because you doubted. If you didn't get your prayers answered, you didn't have enough faith. You doubted in your heart. And they actually use this story to make their theological case. Let me show you. Verse 19. You faithless people. How long did I put up with you? Verse 23. What do you mean, if I can? Jesus then said, anything is possible to those who believe. So if you just have enough faith, you can speak to that mountain, be removed, and cast into the sea. I've tried to move trees. I've tried to move mountains. I've tried to move Chevys. <laughs> Didn't work. James 1.5. If anyone lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave at sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord because they had doubt in their life. Okay? So you have faith churches and denominations that say, it's your faith. Don't doubt. That's how you get the answers from God that you want. That's how you see God move. Is it just, just make sure you stand firm in faith and believe. But then there's the other side of the debate that, man, I just want to be in terms with God's will. 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So what if I'm asking something that's outside of his will? Can I muster up enough faith to move that mountain? He apparently didn't want the Chevy to start. I don't know. Even Jesus, when he was teaching us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, don't, don't be like him. For your Father knows exactly what you need before you ask him. He says, pray like this. God, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, you know what I need even before I pray it. And I just need to pray, God, may your will be done. So which is it? Can my faith move the will of God? Or do I just need to align my prayers with the will of God? Anybody else read the Bible and wrestle with that? 
take all of that theology that's there in that moment, then you lay on top of that an exhausted and embarrassed and a discouraged dad who could care less about the theology. He just wants his son set free. The only reason the man had any doubt in his heart is because his son had suffered so long. God, I know you can heal. God, I've seen you heal. God, I've heard your stories. I know you do it for other people. Won't you do it for me? It's a safe assumption that his son suffered even though the father, the mother, the grandparents, the neighbors, the aunts, the uncles, the the church, they prayed, they prayed, they prayed, they prayed. Listen, I have no stones to throw at this dad. I got nothing. Because I have sat in his seat. I have been where he has been. I have prayed people, prayed for people that I love to be set free, to be healed of cancer, to be healed from diseases, for their marriage to be mended, for their kids to return home, for their finances to be rescued. All the while I see Jesus doing it for some people, he just won't do it for me. Lord, I believe I wouldn't be here otherwise. But help my unbelief. There was something in this dad that caused him to push through. There was something in this dad that caused him to put the effort in, to risk embarrassment, push through the exhaustion. I believe, help my unbelief. And it was a day changing for him, it was a day changer for his son, day changer for the disciples, the crowd that was there. I mean, just Jesus showed up and did what only Jesus can do. Can I get an amen? Some lessons for you and I to take away from this. Number one, Jesus offers you and I hope for my hurting. He offers hope for my hurting. The man asked for mercy, the man asked for help, he receives both. We don't know why the child was possessed. Something opened the door to the demonic activity. Jesus didn't put him through the inquisition. Well, dad, you wanna repent about what happened back there in 1983? Can we talk about what you did? Can we, no, Jesus didn't do any of that. Can we get to the rent? No, 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 no. Jesus just offered hope in the midst of their hurting. He gave them hope when nothing else work. Secondly, he offered faith for their failure. This is a conversation about faith. The faith of the Father, the faith of the nine remaining disciples, which quite possibly is probably who Jesus was most frustrated with. Faith of the bystanders. Jesus calls them out as a faithless generation. And I love the vulnerability of the Father. I believe. Help my unbelief. I connect with that. I feel that. I pray that myself. And Jesus overlooked his lack of faith. He overlooked the disciples' lack of faith. He overlooked the crowd's lack of faith. He overlooked the faithless generation's lack of faith. He overlooks our failures. He overlooks our shortcomings. He overlooks our downfalls. And he still brought healing in that situation. When we lack faith, when we lack the right answers, Jesus shows up with hope and mercy anyway. And somebody ought to say amen. There was no one there that day in the crowd that had the faith to change that situation, and Jesus did it anyway. There was no one there that impressed Jesus. There's times where Jesus goes, woman, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. But that didn't happen here this day. He calls them out for being faithless. And he still did the supernatural anyway. Thirdly, 
Jesus has deliverance for my doubt. This story is one of those that only, only opens up more questions. Like, okay, so are there different levels of demons? Like there's a DEFCON 2 demon, and then there's a DEFCON 4 that you have to fast up? Like, because Jesus said, well, this, this kind only come out by prayer and fast. Is, so I, don't, I don't know. Why couldn't the disciples handle this one? I don't know. Is my generation more faithless than that generation? Should, should, I be, should I be trying to muster up the faith and not doubt, or should I just be praying in accordance to God's will? But in the middle of all my doubts, in the middle of all my unbelief, Jesus still brought healing. Jesus still set a tortured young boy free. When you and I hit tough times, I become like the unbelieving believer father. I believe, Jesus, where else am I going to go? Man, this is hard. Could you help my unbelief? The only reason I'm doubting Jesus is because the boy's like 10 years old. And for 10 years we've been praying this. Jesus, I've been, I believe, but help my unbelief. God, I've seen you do it for them. I just don't know that you'll do it for me. And Jesus wants to deliver you and I from our doubt. It may not be on our time, but it's on his time. He sees you. Listen to me. So whoever's been waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning, God, do you even care? God, do you even see? Whoever can't go to sleep at night, listen. He knows what you're going through. It's just not time yet. God, would you have mercy and help? He sees you. And here's, here's the gospel, plain and pure as I can make it. All, all of us, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Man, we all got things in our life, those sin, those thoughts, those words we said, those actions we regret. Something brought you here today to the foot of the cross. And while you were dead, stuck in that sin, Jesus said, I'll go. He looked at his father and said, I'll go. Jesus came in the form of a baby. He lived a perfect life. All of us are full of sin, but, but Jesus lived a perfect life, meaning he qualified to be the sacrifice for you and I. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. So Jesus said, I, as the perfect sacrifice, God in flesh will shed my blood so there can be forgiveness of sin. While we were dead in our sin, Christ died so that you and I could be made right in relationship with him. The book of Romans said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God supernaturally raised him from the dead, you, not maybe, not might, not can, you will be saved. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever surrendered your life to Christ? I don't know what brought you here today, but I wonder, is there somebody here today, maybe even watching online, that you know you're not in right relationship with your Savior? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cast all across this room, every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody moving around. I wouldn't embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to walk the aisle. I'm not going to ask you to talk to anybody. I just want to simply lead you in a prayer. It's the best way I know how to confess and believe. If you know that you're not in right relationship with God today, I just invite you to pray this prayer with me. Are you ready? Just right there at your seat, just whisper this prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you today because I need you. I have made a mess of my life. 
and I'm so sorry. I don't want that life anymore. Jesus, would you forgive me? Would you come into my life? Make me a new person. I may not understand all of this, but today, Jesus, I'm taking a step of faith and completely surrendering my whole life to you.